Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Political Science. I'm your host, Joe Renoir. My guest today is Dr. Yusi Hanhimaki. We'll discuss his new book, which is titled Pax Transatlantica, America and Europe in the Post-Cold War Era, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Yusi Hanhimaki is Professor of International History and Co-Director of the History and Policy Initiative at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. He's the author of many books, including the award-winning The Flawed Architect, Henry Kissinger and American Foreign Policy, and The Rise and Fall of Detente, American Foreign Policy and the Transformation of the Cold War. Dr. Hanhimaki, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe. Before we get to your new book, tell us a bit about your background and your interests. It seems to me that you are something of a transatlantic figure yourself. Yes, so I am uh, originally from Finland, uh, and I left uh, Finland to pursue graduate studies in the United States in the late 1980s, um, just as the Cold War was, was coming to an end. So in, in some ways, uh, in fact, the book is a sort of, uh, it's, it's not biogra- biographical as such, but, but it, it does cover the period in which I've been out of Finland, more, more or less, and, and traveling the Atlantic from, I spent many years in the United States and, and also a couple of years in Canada. Um, uh, and then in 1995, I, I moved to, uh, to London, uh, to the London School of Economics, where I stayed for five years so in, the, in the international history department there. And then in 2000, I arrived here in Geneva, where I've been a professor of international history and politics for the last two decades, uh, for the entire millennium, if you, if you will. <laughs> and so, so that's, the, that's the short of it. Um, and, and there's been a few twists and turns in terms of, uh, you know, uh, spending a year in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and, and some time in, in Oslo, Norway, and other places. But, but that's the, the, that's the main, main story. And, and so I, I like to think of myself as, as yes, uh, sort of having lived a kind of a transatlantic life over the, my adult life, uh, and at the same time being a sort of, I am currently, I'm a, I'm a citizen of Finland, of course, but I've also, seen about five years ago, became a citizen of Switzerland. So I consider myself a, a sort of a super neutral when it comes down to, to discussing matters of international relations. Um, yeah, so that's that's my uh, my my brief bio, if you will. Okay, great. Uh, you have a very strong background, you see, in diplomatic history, 
but your new book, Pox Transatlantica, is concerned with the present, concerned with the future. Why write about this subject and why, why do it now? So there is, um, I mean, the, there is a strong historical element in the, in, in the book as well. And of course, everything we write um, is, is in some ways is history. And, and I, but I, I think overall, it's sort of, in some ways, you mentioned the, the History and Politics Initiative earlier. It's, it's my belief that, that history and, and current politics just cannot be divorced from each other. They, they are not two separate specimens. Uh, and so I, I, and I think much of the commentary that we see in present day politics, um, you know, the, the return of the term Cold War at such a vengeance over the last, last little while, um, these are that, that we often fighting those, those historical, um, or, or referring to those historical analogies quite freely. Um, and quite easily, because it is the best way or the easiest way, not necessarily the best way, the easiest way that we can make sense of, of, of where, where we are and where we might be actually going in the future. And so, so I, don't, I, I don't, I mean, as a principle, I don't believe that there is such a, there is no, no great divide between what is history and, and, and what is politics. And I think that's, um, that's the sort of one answer to your your question um, the um, the other answer is it relates to the subject matter uh, which is that like I said I've been sort of following or living this kind of a transatlantic life and in, in, as a consequence following what's going on in transatlantic relations mostly as an observer for the last uh, last in, sort of curious observer over the, over the last three decades or so and um, there's a couple of things that sort of s- have stood out from that from that period repeatedly. One is the um, the sort of the constant sense among many many commentators that there's a crisis in transatlantic relations, that there is some kind of a, a breach um, that will that is becoming some sort of terminal. Um, that we've seen these types of headlines so many times over the past three decades. Uh, and yet, at the same time, of course, the transatlantic relationship seems to be doing, I would argue, and I argue in the book quite well uh, throughout, uh, throughout uh, this, this same period. So this curious thing about uh, a relationship that's constantly in crisis and yet at the same time seems to be doing just fine, it's, it's even thriving. It's, it's, uh, if, if you start thinking about you know, institutions like NATO, um, the most remarkable aspect of NATO over the third, last 30 years is not that it's in crisis and about to fold, but rather that it's grown so much and it's taken on uh, a, a new kind of character, in fact, in the post, uh, post-Cold War era. Um, so, so I was wanted to figure this out, and I think the, the, the trigger that really got me thinking about actually writing a book about is, it was, was 2016. Uh, in in the context in which you you saw or we witnessed the the sudden um, apparently sudden rise of populism and 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 the sort of commentary that went with it um, um, by people like Donald Trump calling NATO obsolete and and, and all the rest of it um, and and you know incidents or not incidents. Um, um, 
events like Brexit, the Brexit vote, which which seemed to also characterize something that was uh, a terminal crisis, uh, in is slightly different than the transatlantic one, perhaps, but the terminal crisis in terms of Britain's relationship with Europe. So, so I was th- that's I think was the was the sort of the, the final trigger that I figured maybe maybe it's time to to think about this relationship um, in a sort of this this conflictual yet thriving relationship um, in a and, and not in a sort of snapshot what's happening this week way but but take a slightly more uh, long-term perspective a long durée perspective they we would call say here in uh, in French speaking uh, Switzerland um, so that that's really the the those are the main reasons and I think an, an additional reason to for the book and and what I talk about in the book was was this other notion that was quite has been quite prevalent over the past couple of decades, which is the idea that for the transatlantic relationship the Cold War was the golden era, and that was the era when you saw um, saw true cooperation because after all there was an existential threat that united the the, the Western democracies together and uh, and and. In a, in in a fight against you know, against the Soviet Union and its uh, and and its allies, but I think that also, on some reflection, you know, we can find that indeed the Cold War period uh, witnessed plenty of crises in in the transatlantic relationship. Too many to enumerate. Whether it's about um, so-called out-of-area issues like Suez, whether it's the French decision under Charles de Gaulle to effectively uh, withdraw from NATO's uh, military cooperation, and, and, and so whether it's various uh, trade-related issues uh, and so forth. So, so I wanted to slightly also debunk this notion that, that there had been a golden era, and then post-1990-1991, we've seen a decline in the transatlantic relationship with this, the, and, and so, so those are the, the main reasons I, I think uh, that uh, that I set out to 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 examine the transatlantic relationship over the past past three decades. Well, it's an interesting thing, uh, Dr. Hanemaki. You're entering into what is a very formidable and long-standing argument between those I would call the pessimists and the optimists. I don't think that's a very good terminology, but you, as you've expressed, you're firmly in the latter camp, and we might as well dive into this. Uh, There's a very straightforward and very strong thesis in this book. Uh, I'll just quote very quickly from the text. Uh, you write of your title, the Pax Transatlantica. Of course, we're all familiar with uh, the Roman piece and, and the many uses of the, the Latinate term there. You say the term refers to, quote, the multiple ways in which the nations, institutions, people, and economies of the two sides of the Atlantic have become ever more closely connected in the decades following the end of the Cold War. This historic trend is likely to continue into the foreseeable future. So there, I think there are two parts to this question. One is the, the big question about explaining, you know, you have a, a somewhat optimistic vision. I don't know if that's exactly the right term. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And the other is, why does there seem to be so much attention to the negative, to the crises, to disagreement? Uh, there, there seems to be a constant refrain of, well, the, the transatlantic relationship is troubled. It's falling apart. Um, I, I, I mean, this is, a, this is a, a, a bugbear for anyone trying to write something about the transatlantic relationship because 
all of the all of the naysaying terms have been used. You you, you cannot really say it's in crisis because it's always in crisis. Uh, um, what so what? Describe a bit your optimism, uh, and explain a bit why is there so much attention to crisis? Right. I mean, these these are. I mean, like you said, these these are the the, the big questions. These are the sort of the, the central, really, really the central broad questions. And 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 you're absolutely right to say that that there's been a. There's some, there's a sort of dividing line that those uh, that, that you see come up quite often uh, with uh, what you call pessimists, those who who see the demise of the uh, of, of the transatlantic relationship as imminent and inevitable, uh, tend to be, have the, the bigger megaphone in, in in that debate often, um, because I think the the, the optimists um, are often tend to often be castigated as simply reciting some well-trotted party line, if you, if I can put it that way, um, uh, from you know coming from either NATO statements or or, or some other uh, other such um, such um, institutional context. Um, you know the the sort of common values, common this, common that, that, that seems to be that really is not a headline catcher, right? So I think that is part of the uh, of the of, of the second answer. but in terms of the, my optimism if you want to call it that it's not it's not so much optimism in a sense that there would be um, that there is some kind of a, a, a utopia out there that that we are, we are going towards I don't think that's that's not at all what I'm what I'm arguing here uh, my optimism is is mainly this to, the, the sort of thing that this, and based upon what I see as a as a as a long term trajectory of transatlantic relations, that while there's not going to be a sort of total integration of the two sides of the Atlantic under one roof, under one tent, um, that would imply that that their economies are totally integrated, that that their their security interests are totally similar. And that their politics follow uh, totally similar paths. I don't think that is ever going to happen. And I, but I would argue that that's actually is the strength of this because what what the transatlantic relationship really survives on is diversity uh, of all kind, um, and uh, and that is why um, it has survived as as long as it has as a, as a sort of fundamental building block or fundamental aspect of international relations um, in the you know in the late 20th and, and and throughout the early part of the of the 21st century so so that's the kind of optimism I have I, I it's it's not in other words not that I see this as utopian in any way I see it as as in many ways a sort of uh, what the real world at the moment uh, looks like and is likely, likely to look like uh, into going into the future because I don't think that, we can maybe come back to this later, but I don't think the trends that we see today um, are towards uh, more disunity uh, uh, in terms of the transatlantic relationship. Um, but rather, to, to a large extent, it seems to me that the opposite is, is probably true. Now, in terms of, of this, uh, the second point of the uh, second question, which is about this this negative tendency of uh, of um, 
that that we often see and you know most famously i guess in the post cold war era the um the very uh, snappy sort of characterization of of americans from mars and, and and europeans from venus right with um which um which gained some headlines in the in the early part of of the 20 21st century so uh, robert gagan's um um uh, book which which sort of argue that in fact there was uh, that Europeans and, and Americans were in basically from different planets um, that, uh, that, um, that that was the uh, that was the basic uh, basic point um, but I think so so that you know you so you could argue that is um, in in some ways the more popular type of um, analysis that we've seen often whenever there's a small crisis uh, or a bigger, even a bigger crisis, whether it has to do with, with, with things like, you know, the post 9-11 scenarios and the Iraq war and so forth, that of course was a cause, uh, caused a great deal of tension among a number of countries on the two sides of this line. I don't never dispute that. Um, but as we've seen then, those crises have been smoothed over. Um, and I think the easiest, simplest, most straightforward explanation to that is that Americans and Europeans, A, they need each other for various reasons, whether economic, whether in terms of security, uh, and so forth. And where the political disagreements come from, and I think that's where I, I think I write in the book that, you know, for many of these disagreements, actually democracy has something to answer for because it does the freedom of expression that comes with it. The very sort of the, the, the lifeblood, in some ways, of uh, uh, of Western democracies um, allows uh, for disagreements to be voiced in ways that of that that uh, often dominate the um, the headlines and may give an appearance that indeed a terminal crisis is at stake. However. Uh, at least looking at the last 30 years and even going back to the Cold War period, uh, it seems that all those so-called terminal crises somehow have been smoothed over. Um, so that's where also, so I, th I think the, um, um, that sort of the optimism, the tendency towards the negative um, is, is, is in, in part ingrained in the transatlantic relationship but one should look forward to many years of, of future crises um, and disagreements and so forth and I don't think that is, is uh, in any way a sign that the transatlantic relationship is about to blow up so to speak Well you know Dr. Hanemaki I agree I, I see that in what you've just said and also in the book you're certainly not laying out a utopian vision. I, I think I read that you were quite realistic, and I mean that in every sense of the term. And uh, I think in a, in a sense, perhaps you're also giving a bit of a boost to the, the ideals of a multi-party democracy. If democracy is, as is often said, it's, it's a place for people to argue. It's a place for people to disagree. And maybe the disagreements make a democratic society stronger. Uh, you're implying, and also I think you, you really say this directly in a few points, the relationship, the transatlantic relationship draws some long-term strength from disagreements that how do we know what, what one of the other countries or the other countries in the relationship want? How do we know what they're thinking then from the disagreements? And you have a very great uh, game you play with your students 
<laughs> where you can describe this if you'd like, where you you give them a quote or a citation and you ask them, you know, wh who said this and when was it? And as, as you describe, students tend to think, well, this must have been from very recently. And in fact, you can find any number of quotes from the last 50 or 60 years of people criticizing the relationship, saying that it's about to end and that kind of thing. Um, can you can you describe that anecdote very quickly? Sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a game. I, I, I teach a course about the transatlantic relationship uh, every well, pretty much every other year here at the, at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, and and so the, in in the first class, I, I I've started to, to giving them a, put a quote up uh, and ask them to I call it date citation game, uh, and I give them a quote and no date, no name. Uh, so so one of the quotes I use is is from um, from Raymond Raymond Vernon in uh, and it goes. Says basically says that there's a profound shift taking place in the relationship uh, between the United States and Western Europe, and following that, those who would think that this the achievement of some kind of moderate world order depends on uh, cooperation in the Atlantic area, so within the transatlantic context, the implication of the change um, it, are, are very very disturbing, um, and so. I put up this quote. You, I offer, you know, most recently get get the sort of, um, you know, it's either it's the Trump, um, some kind of a Trump uh, era commentary in, in in in. I tell them it's from Foreign Affairs, the the journal Foreign Affairs, and it all must be in the in the Trump era, um, and then reflection to Trump calling the NATO alliance obsolete. Um, so I smirk, and they realize it's not true. So then I, uh, I, I al always get Americans are from Mars, uh, Europeans are from Venus, from 2003, but it's not that either. Um, and then eventually uh, I reveal the great secret, which is from 1973. Um, and it's what, what was built at one point, the Year of Europe, uh, by Henry Kissinger. Um, and a year... Uh, a year that saw uh, a lot of uh, tension, in fact, um, rather than a sort of rebirth of the of the Atlantic Alliance, as Henry Kissinger had had wanted, it became a very acrimonious debate um, across the Atlantic, exacerbated even more when the October War uh, uh, began in in the Middle East and the oil crisis hit uh, uh, hit the uh, hit Western particularly Western Europe, quite hard. So it, it created a different perception on how, how to address um, that particular issue. So the point, the point I, make, uh, I then make is, is simply that you can find these quotes, like you, like you said, you can find quotes like this in, in almost any, any period. What I choose is, is a quote from 50 years ago. So, um, so it's not, and, and I, don't, I think one could use most of those words um, and, and place them in I don't know, 2016 and, and find the 2017 and, 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 and they would fit um, at, at least in, in, in broad terms. So, so that's the point. There, there is this, um, this on, the, the crisis mentality is not new. I think that's, that's this is one of the points or starting points of, of, in fact, of the book. Well, let's dive into the structure of the book. Your central argument is built around uh, three pillars. One is the security relationship, one is the economic relationship, and one is the parallel political developments. Can we start off, uh, you've already mentioned a bit about NATO, but it's worth uh, giving you a bit more time to describe the argument. 
you know, there's been so much storm und drang these last few years, let's call it the last five years, over NATO, over, uh, gosh, uh, everything from Trump's criticism of NATO, uh, President Macron's criticism of uh, of NATO. There's the is the questions about is is NATO actually ineffectual? Uh, the West did very little to punish Russia for what happened in Crimea and for other actions. Um, the expansion of the mission into Afghanistan and Libya, not necessarily resulting in what what uh, leaders wanted. So you're you're offering a little bit of a counterintuitive argument here. What's the argument about the strength and resilience of NATO? And uh, how 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 do you read that as as actually an organization that's as you put it surprisingly successful? So um, I mean everything you of course everything that, uh, that that you said absolutely true in terms of 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 NATO being or the NATO's purpose being questioned quite a bit um, in well in the re- in the past five ten years in fact throughout the post-cold war era and i think that probably is the starting point is is that um when the cold war ended that the first debate was whether one needed nato in the anymore uh, given that the existential threat the other alliance was gone warsaw pact was no more so what's nato for and i think that was the big question for the 1990s in in particular um i think the answer to that came in the form of NATO enlargement, the first set of NATO enlargements, uh, and it was given not necessarily by the United States, but rather by Hungary, Poland, and and and, and Czech, what was still Czechoslovakia at the time, and then split to, to the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Um, and it was that well, it may be that the Soviet Union was gone, but certainly countries in East Central Europe on the road towards democratization and and joining free market economies and joining essentially becoming part of the transatlantic world. So these countries felt a very strong need to have some kind of guarantee, continuing guarantee into the 21st century, um, that their security, their external threats to them would not be... um, um, that, that they would have some kind of a security blanket over them. In, in, in under which um, they could more successfully then build a new democratic uh, market-oriented order, uh, and so I think that was the that was the, the first point. And I think um, in some, in many ways that was successful. And I think what what it set in place is a sort of series of enlargements um, that have led to the moment in 2020 when North Macedonia. Uh, joined the NATO alliance, that NATO now has 30 countries compared to the 12 that originally in 1949 had formed NATO. And in fact, most, if not all, of that enlargement has taken place since 1990. Um, so if you discount the Spain, uh, Spain, for example, and, 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 and West Germany joining NATO during the Cold War, um, then much of that enlargement uh, of predominantly has taken place since the end of the Cold War. And that, to me, already is an indication that, that this must be a somewhat attractive proposition, that join the particular alliance, in, in, case, uh, in this case NATO, is something that provides a sense of security to the, to the newcomers. Um, and I think the, we often think 
however, about NATO enlargement slightly differently. We consider this as a provocation, right? Uh, and the narrative that we mostly hear is a narrative of uh, of NATO provoking and uh, even in the in, in some cases sort of justifying certain actions on, on, on the part of Russia, for example, Crimea, as that you already mentioned, but also uh, also before that, the engagement in Georgia, engagements in, in, in the eastern parts of Ukraine and, and so forth. So so there is um, and, and I, I wouldn't deny that there is a link there, but but it seems to me that um, that that narrative is only has perhaps gotten a bit too much play in in recent years. Um, now the other other point about NATO's success is that that not only did it grow, which already I think is significant, but it has also taken on a somewhat new uh, new kind of uh, new character. I mean, if if its main uh, reason for living uh, during the Cold War was the simple existence of the Soviet Union and the and the Warsaw Pact. Um, it became clear in the 1990s that that since that presumably had become a much less of a, a, a threat uh, to the alliance as a whole, then um, as a security alliance, uh, what were the threats that, that NATO countries should be concerned about? And I think that's where we've seen the sort of the adapt- adaptability, not always a uh, very successful one necessarily and you mentioned for example Libya and, Af- and Afghanistan being a, a very obvious case when when certainly the success can be must be questioned and and uh, very very seriously but but we've seen a sort of very different outlook on uh, on security that security is is not just NATO being there uh, which was the case in the Cold War. NATO's success was basically that it never had to do anything, um, but but uh, it deterred something um, something from the worst case scenario from happening by simply being uh, being there. Uh, now, in the post Cold War era, we've seen, of course, NATO becoming somewhat more active um, outside of its area, and you know the, the question that often created crises in transatlantic relations during the Cold War. And to some extent, even since, which was about out of area issues, so outside the NATO area. So we've seen this, these, um, these, um, um, these cases of NATO engagement um, in where it's in Afghanistan, a little bit in Iraq, of course Libya, and and so forth. And um, and and that me is while not great successes, all of them, it it does tell us something about an alliance that is not not frozen in time in terms of its uh, its its uh, its, res- its raison d'être its 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 reason for living well i think you raise a, a very interesting point in if i might just add on to what you've said i think in the discussion about nato expansion uh, you imply in the book that there perhaps it's a bit too focused on washington and moscow and I'm not weighing in right now. I'm not commenting on the perception among many in Russia that that this was a provocation, the the moving moving uh, NATO to the east. But you, you you make a very good point that these were democratic governments that decided democratically to join NATO. 
uh, they said, we want to do this, that, that in, in fact, maybe we should reorient our perspective on uh, NATO expansion away from Washington and Moscow and think in terms of what it is that these countries of Central and Eastern Europe wanted, uh, their unique histories, their unique uh, uh, security perceptions. Um, it, do, do, is that accurate? Am I, am I reading you correctly? <laughs> I think that's that's quite accurate. I think it also, I mean, it's the, the other point of all this, this that we, which relates to the European, um, and, and you mentioned Macron and and, and so forth. So, the, this, the the strategic autonomy that that European strategic autonomy um, discussion, which has been quite uh, prevalent actually in 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 the last couple of years, um, and which which has highlighted i mean two points is with number one which is that there is a need or a desire and so forth among many europeans for for increased autonomy from the united states um into in the security arena but paradoxically this discussion has also highlighted uh the the indispensable nature that many other europeans consider that the united states still has and the importance role the United States still has to play in in the context of of, of European security. So so yes, but but you're absolutely right that that in the end, I think the um, the discussion that that we've seen, whether it's in Moscow, whether it's in uh, in the United States as well, often focuses on those two actors uh, rather than the other, you know, the the 28 European countries that also. Are member states of, of, of NATO and particularly the ones that have joined since the end of the Cold War, because those are the ones that um, that, that did so for uh, for a number of reasons that had nothing to do with the original rationale uh, or had very little to do with the, ultimately about the little uh, original rationale of, of, of NATO in, in 1949. So can we switch gears a little bit and? talk about the second pillar, economic ties. This is another area that has been the source of much uh, public disagreement in the last five years. Uh, you know, one one can look, for example, at the, the TTIP agreement being put on the back burner. Uh, in fall of 2019, we saw that Trump's trade war interest was not just about China, but that he was willing to place tariffs on agricultural goods and aircraft coming out of Europe, that there was this this, this feeling that maybe the Europeans cannot rely on America, not just for security, but also a, a continuity of the economic relationship. But you suggest, and I think you make a very good argument for the, the uh, tremendous amount of integration in the transatlantic economic space. Can you talk a bit about that? Right. So um, the it, in terms of the integration, so let me let me just before I, I talk about some maybe maybe for other few figures, but in terms of of the overall argument, I think well, what what and you mentioned TTIP uh, and and so forth. I think from from the nineteen nineties onwards, there's been this ongoing discussion, on and off discussions, I have to say about. The, so the big bang that that would really integrate the transatlantic economy that the, sort of create the true free trade area and and so forth and as we've seen they've almost inevitably have stalled on on various forms of disagreements whether it has to do 
with, with you know something to do with subsidizing subsidies or agricultural products, whether it's any number of issues that have caused concern. Um, you know the, the labor movements on both sides of the Atlantic being being concerned about the implications of things things like that. And I think one thing I, I'm confident I'm, I'm fairly confident about is that that you are quite unlikely to see that kind of um, um, equivalent to the I don't know, creation of the European Economic Community in the in the 1950s. You're unlikely to see that kind of a, a, a sort of uh, deep integration in terms of trade, um, trade, and, and, and a creation of a true free trade area anytime soon in the transatlantic context. But my argument is uh, basic argument in terms of of saying that in, that doesn't mean there hasn't been deeper integration in the transatlantic economy since the end of the Cold War, because if you start looking at some of the figures. On this, uh, uh, on 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 this, it's we start with always discuss trade, of course, and where where we see trading goods. Um, the United States and Europe, um, they are each other's main export markets when it comes to goods, even today. Each of them, and that's sort of is is a side side point to to all of this. Is also it, their main external source of imports of, of industrial goods um, is, is, of course, the People's Republic of China. And so they're in, in that sense, in, in, the, in the global sense, they are very much in the same, same position uh, in terms of being, um, being major importers of, of Chinese, Chinese goods. But my argument would be that, that the sort of what we traditionally have often and, and, and still to some extent to focus on trading goods, we should perhaps look at some of the other figures that, 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 that often um, don't, don't make headlines so easily. And, and uh, two of those maybe, maybe to mention, one which is trading services. Um, and in, in that era and in that arena, the United States or North America, broadly speaking, and... Western Europe, not just the European Union, but including you know Great Britain, Switzerland, and and so forth. Clearly, there is a deeply integrated and 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 heavily successful sort of uh, uh, marketplace when it comes down to the production of services. Uh, and and in that arena, China is a very small player when it ultimately when it comes down to to, to providing services. And then I think one one of the maybe the most significant part of the, of the argument ultimately is is a question of investment, and and that's where we've seen over the last thirty years and going back to the to the seventy to even to the Cold War era we've seen the North America and Europe being the you know being each other's uh, favorite. Uh, FDI foreign direct investment destinations um, that um, that together they amount to something I don't know with somewhere around 60 65 percent perhaps of, of global FDI and most of that that figure is actually transatlantic investment which to me sort of indicates a deep, a different kind of deep integration in that it means often creating jobs, creating, investing in in 
subsidiaries of American and or European companies across the uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, and and all of this is happening, I would assume, because there is an expectation on the part of the investor that that these are safe investments, that the political systems, the political stability, uh, and underscored perhaps by by the the, the relative. Uh, sort of security of uh, in, in terms of of the areas provided by the North Atlantic Alliance means that that investors are not so concerned about um, about the negative outcome of of the, that or negative consequences of investing heavily across the Atlantic. So that's that's the sort of the, the integration part. And maybe just to add add to that that there's of course there's a negative part to this this integration. Um, that it means that often in terms, if you look at the past 30 years, um, when that American and European economies tend to rise and fall together, basically. Um, that we saw this perhaps most evidently and most obviously in the context of the so-called Great Recession, uh, starting in 2007, um, when once the American um, subprime market started to tank and, and it had started to sort of have an impact on the overall economy, the Europeans very quickly followed suit. And, and that had then, you know, the economics uh, downturn uh, both on both sides of the Atlantic, added to in Europe to do other things like the Euro crisis and, and so forth. And then the sort of slight return from that and you didn't see you don't see that similar uh, quite the similar sort of patterns uh, if you were to look at the, the Chinese economy or in, in many other uh, other parts of the um, of the world that are perhaps less connected to the to the transatlantic economy so so those are the sort of so again here I'm not arguing that there is some kind of uh, full conversions that that the United States is purely a European uh, economic power and doesn't have any economic interest elsewhere, for example, or the Brits or the European Union and so forth. But that within that, that it's it's fairly clear when looking at many of the statistics that that economically the connections, the the the, the transatlantic marketplace is not only the wealthiest marketplace in the world; it is in many ways the most deeply integrated marketplace in the world. So let's, uh, in the time we have left, can you cover a bit about the third tier, which is the description of the, uh, I think maybe often hidden integration of, uh, well, integration, I guess not the right word, but parallel developments in domestic politics in North America and in Europe. Uh, populism is a buzzword in the last five years or so, five or six years since Brexit in uh, 2015 and since Trump's election in 2016. Uh, the, uh, all, uh, like the other two subjects, it's uh, something about which there has been a great deal of hand wringing and uh, people spelling out the, the the end of democracy or the end of the transatlantic relationship. Uh, you you uh, pose a very interesting argument here as well, saying that there is rough a roughly similar chronology and parallel developments in both the U.S. and Europe. Uh, can you talk a bit about that, and uh, and and how do you how do you see this setting up, and and where does it bring us today? Right. So, um, 
I'll come to populism in a, in a, in a second, but I think what, maybe the starting point of, of, of this discussion, number one, it is it's not to say that, um, um, that American and European politics, like you said, they're not integrated in a sense uh, that, you know, they'd be running the same elections and, and this and that and, and the other thing. They are parallel in a sense that, that it is possible and I could say this is in some ways quite obvious that, that this is taking place, there are parallel developments um, taking place on both sides of the Atlantic, with populism being one of the, and then not only populism, but then what I would call the pushback against populism, the most recent trend that, 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 that I, was, I, I would argue is, is in evidence in the last, just in the last, last couple of years. That, that you've seen parallel developments over the past 30 dec- uh, three decades in a way that perhaps you didn't see quite those kinds of parallel developments in the Cold War ones. Now, this is where I sort of, this in this part, would, would draw a distinction between the Cold War politics, uh, politics, transatlantic politics, versus what comes after 1990. And the dividing line is... is, is in last part, perhaps in Europe, because what happens in Europe when the Cold War ends is that there's suddenly the the old left or the, the the extreme left in Europe, which was in many many countries a sort of active participant in West European politics, whether in France or Italy, Finland, my own own country, there were significant Communist Party presence in uh, and and they got a significant chunk of the popular vote. And since these were multi-party rather than sort of bi-party systems as in the United States and the UK, they often were represented, if not in government, then in, in many other, um, they, they represented a strong, op- strong sort of opposition party in, and, and in, the, in a number of political systems across Western Europe. What happened in, after 1990 is that these communist parties basically disappeared. Um, and... And the sort of the idea, I guess, captured in this in this notion about the end of history, which which doesn't quite satisfy many uh, many, but but the idea that suddenly we were entering some kind of a post ideological age after the end of the Cold War. I think that sort of took uh, took a hold in Europe, and I would argue also in the in the United States, where perhaps the transformation is not quite as obvious. Uh, or as as remarkable as in, uh, in 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 many European countries, but you do see the notions about uh, the, these ideas that you could divide the political spectrum to left and right in very simple terms. So that was being challenged, and I would argue, and what I argue in in, in this part of the book, basically, is that in the 1990s, what we see emerge from that is is what we sometimes call third-way politics, uh, politics of the middle, um, that we see leaders who um, are no longer sort of ideologically wedded to, to the left or the right in that old sense, like Bill Clinton in the United States, like Tony Blair in the UK, like um, Gerhard Schroeder in, 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 in Germany, and uh, Romano Prodi perhaps in, in Italy and, and so forth. And you get this third way, this uh, you know the new Democrats or the new Labour, uh, all of these 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 this new 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 type of uh, discourse that that enters, in which you basically are trying to are starting to fight over the um, 
votes for, for votes in the great middle of politics. And I think that is the case in, in both in the United States and across Europe uh, throughout, the, I would say, the first decade and a half after the end of the Cold War. And then we have this break, which is already referred to the Great Recession, which clearly shakes up some of this, um, uh, this, um, um, this sort of drive to the center and creates a space for what we call populism, which is a hopelessly imprecise term for many, many things in, in politics. But basically what we see in the 2010s is the emergence of populism as a major political force across Europe um, and also in North America and particularly, of course, in the United States. You see it first, in, I guess, in the form, form of the Tea Party, for example, but then later on, yes, we see Donald Trump, but of course we also see Bernie Sanders. And, and then there are, you know, populism is not just, just of the populism of the right, um, although that's what we have tended to focus on or in our analysis. But you see this, this rise of populist movements and parties. They take different shape and form um, in different countries, uh, often depending on the type of political system that is in place. So in a country like the United States, in a, which is basically a two-party two system, um, and, uh, Democrats and Republicans, you see, of course, populism take over within the parties, within the established parties. Um, and in the in the Republican Party, of course, where we ultimate sort of climax of all of this is, is Donald Trump and his election in, in, in 2016. Um, but you do see others, you know, in, in most European countries, you see similar kinds of, uh, of movements and parties, you know, think about the Liga in, uh, in, in Italy, they often sort of very play upon nationalist sentiments, but in this context of, of economic uncertainty, blamed on globalization, uh, migration, which is a common theme, anti-migration policy um, for, for parties like the Liga. It's a, it's a big theme in the context of the, of the British Brexit debate. It's a big theme for the so-called true Finns in, in Finland, for the Front National in France. And so forth. So similar themes across the board uh, are clearly emerging as as the driving forces, as, as the vote getters, if you will, for for these um, these uh, political movements or parties that ex that that are created, or also sort of the sub-party um, context, like uh, you could argue that the, the the Trump supporters within within the Republican Party or or Boris Johnson supporters within the Conservative Party in Britain, and so forth. So, so the point really is uh, is is not that uh, that everything is is taken is the same, but it is that in terms of a broad analysis, one can say that there are parallel developments um, that are taking place in North America, across Europe. Um, and, and of course, I'm not disputing the fact that Hungary looks very different from Italy, and this looks very different from Britain, and that looks very different from France. So there, there's no, no, no question of, of, about that. Uh, there are still specific characteristics, but on the broad outlines, you can see that, that if anything, um, the 1990s were sort of the decade of the, 
uh, of the center left uh, in in some ways the early 2000s perhaps to the, the gravitating a little bit to the center right and then the 2010s we saw the rise of populism uh, and and now I think we are in a moment in which the there's a kind of a, a pushback to against populism. Maybe a last point just to add to that that one additional thing what I find interesting and uh, in in this is how important what takes place in the political world in the United States is actually still on the other side of the Atlantic. That Trump's election was not just an American event; it it, it triggered a lot of um, a uh, lot of sort of many of the populist leaders saw it in some way as 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 their win as well and there's no you know it's no accident that uh, that Matteo Salvini for example who was who was the leader of the Italian um, Liga the, the the sort of the right wing populist party in Italy in 2020 he was wearing in public a, a maga hat so make america great again now why would an italian political leader be wearing that that sort of shows the transnational element in the an appeal and also the influence that the united states and american elections the biggest sort of democratic um uh, game in town uh, still has on uh, on on the other side of the of the Atlantic. Well, you see, this has been a, a delightful conversation about your book. I would love to talk about it for another hour, but I know that uh, time is short. Is there anything we've left out? Is there anything you'd like to to add about your argument and your marshalling of resources here? Uh, anything that we have not had time to get to? So I, I think what maybe one one thing I, I could simply add that, that what the book. Ultimately, it is not a book about. It's not a book about how the transatlantic relationship uh, functions internally, rather than a book about how it fits into the into the broader context of the of of the modern world. Um, so I don't talk that much about you know a new Cold War scenario with with, with China or, or Russia. However. What I would perhaps, it, it might be in, in closing, uh, uh, interesting to that. To me, many of these, um, what we've seen in the last couple of years, um, and certainly this year in 2021 alone, these concerns uh, about the incoming U.S. administration, about China and so forth, efforts to get Western Europe to uh, sort of sign up and, and NATO become some kind of an alliance that not only is concerned about, of course, Russia, but also about China. I think it, it sort of highlights or, or in many ways supports the overall argument that I tried to make, which is that the transatlantic relationship is actually you know, on a rather strong footing because all those debates show how important um, Europe is for the United States still in in 2021, which is one of those questions that that has been asked uh, asked over and over again. And I didn't think there's any doubt about the situation the other way around. I think the United States still carries an awful lot of weight in in Europe, whether it's as a sort of political trendsetter, as I was just talking about populism and so forth, or whether because of the or economic significance, and of course, uh, the security connection that is so deeply embedded in uh, in, in the context of.
Well, Dr. Yusi Hanemaki, this has been great. The title of the book is uh, Pax Transatlantica, America and Europe in the Post-Cold War Era. I think it's an excellent, concise read. And as uh, Dr. Hanemaki has explained, it uh, gives us much to think about. It's focused enough, but it gives us food for thought on the broader security and economic questions that we're going to be facing in the future as well. Uh, Dr. Hanemaki, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe. It's been really a great pleasure talking with you this afternoon.